Hi, Xenia. <laughs> Thanks for coming. We'll wait until it's time, like we wait five minutes and uh, give people time to arrive and then I'll introduce you. Thank you, Katarina. Nice to, to hear you today. Yeah, nice to hear you too.
Hi everyone, um, thank you for coming. Um, uh, we uh, were waiting a few minutes. Your audio is working just fine. <laughs> we were waiting for um, for people to arrive and uh, yeah, so we can we can slowly start the room. Um, please, everyone that wants to come up to the stage. Raise your hand, and uh, we'll, you will be able to ask your questions. Um, but first, let me introduce you to um, Dr. Xenia Krasileva. Um, she, we are very honored to have her today. She will be talking about her latest research, uh, which I think is really um, groundbreaking and very interesting. So um, thank you so much. And let me give you some information, background information about Dr. Krasileva. Um, she is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley. She's in an interdisciplinary scientist who studies genomics and plant immunity. Krasileva holds both a bachelor in science and a PhD degree from Berkeley, where she studied plant microbe interactions and she was trained in genomic and computational biology. She did her po postdoctoral work in wheat genomics with George Dubokovsky at University of California, Davis, supported by USDA uh, NIFA postdoctoral fellowship. Krasileva received the Carlotta Award for Contribution to Wheat Genomics, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation Inventor Fellow and NIH Director's New Innovator Awards for New Innovative Combining Evolutionary and Computational Energy. The Krasileva Lab at Berkeley maintains research interests in the biology of genomes, evolution and function of innate immune systems and of plant pathogen interactions. Um, yeah, you can read more at her lab website, which is krasilevalab.org. I can post it later, the link to her lab, and you can also find her on Twitter. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming, and uh, we are very honored to have you, and we are very excited to hear about your research. The stage is yours. Thank you, Katarina. It's it's lovely to be here and um, to present the story behind the paper to you. Um, I'll start by saying that I'm I'm really speaking with a heavy heart today because, um, as many of you can guess from my last name, I was actually born in Russia in Saint Petersburg, and what I'm seeing today is really worrisome to me and. Um, you know, my, my heart is with the people in Ukraine as well as with the protesters right now in my hometown and many towns across Russia. But what I'm going to tell you today is um, a good story, a, a story how the computational biology and the main breakthroughs that are happening right now. Uh, um, Ksenia, can yeah. I? Yeah, I wanted to, I wasn't sure what to do today if I should put some links to support for humanitarian and medical um, support for people in in the conflict zone. So um, I thank you that you mentioned it. 
you know, I didn't want to take the stage away from you. So please go on this link tree if you want to donate, if you want to have more resources. I got this from a room that was led by uh, people from NPR, the National Public Radio, earlier. Uh, so yeah, go on there uh, to have some reliable resources and also links for donations that were verified by trustworthy people, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, I'll switch in a, in a second the link back to um, Dr. Krasileva's uh, paper. Thank you, Katerina. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I wrote a letter to my colleagues today and I spoke to my lab today and I just um, urge you to all to just look, you know, look at the events, but also keep an eye on the protests that are going on and the brave people who are protesting this war. Um, okay, back to computational biology. So what I believe is that we have a lot of um, advancements in the technology right now, including computational biology. And now is there really a time to combine it and use it for the good to solve problems that we couldn't solve before on a, on a completely different level. And one of these um, problems, you know, was, for us has been, how does a pathogen become a pathogen? And we understand it better um, maybe with viruses which have only a few genes, and again, it's hard to study them, as, as you probably know, but they have only a few genes, and they're successful, very successful in causing infections. Bacteria have, might have, you know, several dozens of genes that are secreted into the host, and they're also really good at causing the infection. But if it comes to the fungal pathogens, um, there isn't really a minimum number of genes they need to cause an infection, and they can secrete literally hundreds and thousands of proteins and molecules, and to decipher which ones of them are important for pathogenesis, which ones of them can we target, how are they all related to each other, what makes a fungal pathogen a pathogen, has been an unprecedentedly hard task. Um, and we argue that in our paper that computational structural genomics is one of the approaches today that can allow us to address that question. Um, some of you might not have been thinking about a fungal pathogen. What does a fungal pathogen look like, right? Um, it is a problem for human health. We have um, several major fungal pathogens of humans, but we don't normally see it in our everyday life. Now, what I want you to think about when you think about fungal pathogens, think about the animation video of Japanese um, studio Ghibli called Nausicaa. And if you've seen Nausicaa, you've seen uh, this post-apocalyptic world that's inhabited, that's been taken over by a toxic fungus that releases its spores um, in the environment. Now, that is actually not far away from the reality when it comes to the fungal infection of our plants and especially crops. Uh, fungi are really, really good at infecting plants. They're really, really good at infecting uh, huge areas that are uh, planted by crops such as wheat or soybean or any other major crops uh, out there in the world. And they release 
um, clouds of spores in the environment that they can be then transported over huge distances uh, through wind by air. Those spores are about the size of a pollen uh, grains. And so all of us during those seasons, we inhale them, we inhale those spores. If I go to a wheat field on some of our trials, my shoes turn orange from the spores that are present in that field. And the current way of controlling these fungal pathogens is fungicides, is chemicals that are being spread on maybe three to five times a year. They're spread by airplanes, they're um, applied to most of our crops, and you know, fungi can also become resistant to the fungicide. Now, what my lab um, studies and the paradox that we want to address is how to um, utilize the natural native immune systems of the plants and of all the organisms that do not have adaptive immunity, uh, antibody-based immunity, to defend these pathogens. And the plants have fantastic repertoires of defenses, um, and they are, in nature, they are capable of recognizing rapidly evolving pathogens in their molecules. And so what we keep thinking is how do we identify um, this virulence factors in the pathogens and how do we identify maybe what's conserved across different pathogens and how do we target them um, uh, to boost immunity of our crops. Now, as I mentioned, in a typical uh, plant pathogen, a fungal pathogen can encode between 500 and 3,000 secreted proteins that it will release in the environment and inject um, into their hosts. And these 500 to 3,000 proteins, often they don't look like anything else. They don't look like each other even, if you just take their primary amino acid sequence. And sometimes that's because they're rapidly evolving. Um, so the sequence similarities uh, degrades over time too rapidly. Sometimes um, that is because um, they're highly um, adaptable and, and uh, they, uh, they arise um, quite uh, rapidly in the course of a, of a pathogen evolution or fungal evolution. Um, and we were quite at lost, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I did it on one on my seed or uh, molecule, one virulence molecule at a time. And typically, you know, one PhD student, one virulence molecule. It takes five years to study it. If you have 2,000 of them and one pathogen, you know, that's uncomprehensible. How do we cover them all? And what happened in the last couple of years, we had this breakthrough in machine learning approaches, ability to predict three-dimensional structures of the proteins. The approaches were developed uh, first, um, they were developed in academia, uh, and they've been developed for the past 30 years by the labs, um, um, such as David Baker's lab. And they've been also picked up and started to be developed by industry, specifically by a uh, deep mind um, uh, company that released um, AlphaGo. They defeated a uh, computer in the game of Go using machine learning. And the next problem they attacked was um, making um, this models, uh, predicting structural models of proteins. And in my lab, um, a PhD student uh, pioneered this work. His name is Kun Yang Siong. He is a Korean American. And he came to me um, during his first year of his PhD and said, Ksenia, there has been this breakthrough 
I want to apply it to resolve three-dimensional structures of thousands of fungal pathogen uh, molecules. And I want to be able to compare these proteins in the 3D space to see what are the similarities and what are the differences. And these tasks, although the machine learning technology was available, was very, very, very difficult because it turned out it was quite difficult to make sure everything runs. It takes immense amount of computational resources, but Kunyang persevered and he made it work. And what you see in this paper is the result of uh, his first study. And it uh, was the first study in the field that applied this computational structural genomics approach um, to literally thousands of molecules. What we found um, was very interesting we found that a the um, modeling the machine learning modeling in fact does work really really well and it is able to predict vast majority to give us high confidence structures for vast majority of the protein it didn't work on everything so um, we also identified groups of proteins that couldn't be resolved by this method some of them there might be intrinsically unstructured. Others might be lacking enough information in the data sets available today to reliably predict the structures. And for those uh, proteins that where we, we did identify the structures, it was reliably that was around a thousand proteins for these fungal pathogens. Kunyank was able to compare them in the 3D space and uh, was able to form on um, similarity groups. So sequences that look nothing alike um, on the primary amino acid level, all of a sudden through that lens of 3D structural genomics, we saw how they looked similarly. And so we were able to classify these thousands of proteins in about a hundred structural groups. And we were able to identify in this specific pathogen specific structural groups that are expanded, that are, um, you know, they're, they're unique to this pathogen. Um, we were also able to see um, proteins, secreted proteins that look similar between this pathogen and some of the other pathogens for which structures were available and formulate a couple of ideas. Um, one, um, we think that um, we can apply computational structural genomics to the problem of resolving virulence factors secreted proteins and identifying structural groups. So we can start to do evolutionary analysis in the 3D space and look how do the actual shapes of the proteins change. Secondly, we observe that seemingly unrelated pathogens utilize similar structures, similar folds. So we can start to ask questions of what does distinguish a fungus that's a pathogen from a fungus that just leaves, that are beneficial to a plant or that leaves saprophytically in the environment? And uh, then, well, can we target the specific classes of proteins that are unique to pathogens? The other question that um, we could ask is, where do these um, pathogen factors come from? And um, currently, in current work that Kunyang is continuing, we hypothesize that 
they actually are derived from maybe a benign um, secreted protein that are normally a fungus utilize it to survive in the environment and they're then expanded in copy number um, and adapted to infect a specific host. The um, other key question that we asked is it's often hard to predict a function of um, these secreted proteins um, you know because they don't look like anything else in the databases and by using the structural 3D information, we were able to say, hey, this protein looks like an enzyme. It looks like it might be chewing something on, and the other protein might look like another. So we can also do functional annotation and get a better idea what type of activities these proteins encode. Um, now, where does it lead us next? And I really want to, you know, um, spend more time discussing it and hearing from you. I think it leads us next to a very exciting era where we can do uh, not only computational structural genomics, but comparative computational structural genomics. And so what we're doing right now, um, we are applying this process and I would urge anyone, you know, if you're working on a pathogen, um, apply computational structural genomics to your pathogen of interest. Uh, we're applying this um, um, process to around 40 different fungi, uh, including those that just live in the environment, a couple of mushrooms, and many uh, plant pathogens. Uh, and we're comparing what type of structural groups uh, distinguish different pathogens and what type of structural groups might be associated with adap their adaptation to particular hosts such as wheat or rice, uh, what type of structures might be associated when a pathogen jumps the host and what type of structural groups are associated with the pathogen's lifestyle whether it's um, prefers to live on a live plant tissue or it chews up a dead plant tissue. Um, and overall, um, very exciting area of research. I'm quite um, proud of Kunyang and I'm really happy to be involved in this area. And um, I would love to hear more from you and be able to answer your questions about it. Yeah, thank you so much for that great um, introduction and giving us an overview of your amazing very interesting work. So yeah, please go ahead. Uh, if you have questions, flash your mic or um, yeah, um, go ahead, please. Well, if nobody asks a question, um, I will, I will go ahead and ask a question. So um, I think uh, your research is, um, so do you see that your research is uh, interesting especially for agriculture and the future um, for um, creating basically a more sustainable um, agriculture since if we can better um, know how pathogens um, basically are mm, destroying crops and so on can we develop a more um, a less harsh for like for the environment, a less harsh um, pesticide version based on your work. Yes, absolutely, Katarina. Um, 
and we're, what we're thinking about now, and um, we're thinking about the application of this work. Um, we're thinking, you know, we can start to develop receptors, immune receptors against um, these molecules, but we need to be able to pick, right? Which molecule do we choose? And this structural genomics work allows us uh, to um, a uh, get structural information, but b get information of what is conserved, right? What might be indispensable for um, the pathogen and target that. And I think it's an exciting area right now because the synthetic biology and uh, ability to synthesize DNA and to synthesize what we call designer receptors would allow us to essentially develop immunotherapy-like approaches for plants, for agriculture, and say, hey, we can now uh, give plants an ability to recognize a particular pathogen rapid in response. And it's specifically important for crops. In natural pathosystems and natural environment, you know, a field of grass, you can rarely see it completely infected and dead, right? Because on a population level, plants on a level of a field of grass, plants are capable of generating enough diversity in these immune receptors to recognize pathogens. But what we've done in our crops, we plant monocultures, we plant the exact genetic variety that suits us, that, you know, tastes best. And we lost a lot of that um, immune diversity and that's, we need to bring it back and that's what we're working on as well. So looking at the pathogen is like finding what's the Achilles heel that we can target. Yeah, that's such important work. Um, that's amazing. Um, another field, since we are here on Clubhouse, is uh, what I'm thinking about is uh, for terraforming other planets. Um, I think your research would also be quite helpful um, for that. Have you thought about um, that or have people approached you um, for that type of um, field? Can you explain more, a bit more? Yeah, let's say, you know, we go to Mars or try to live on the moon. Um, you know, it's always helpful to know um, the Achilles um, of plans for that very fragile right, right. condition. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, um, well, I mean, don't bring plant pathogens to the moon. That would be my main advice. But the fact is, if we do, um, they're likely to win unless you have, um, you know, a, a, something like, uh, in a, you know, immune receptors in a test tube with you to combat them. So definitely in any type of um, truly, you know, sustainable world, we do need these um, immunity genes for plants to be ready and we need the technologies that we have, we currently do have for human health. We need it to be available for the health of our plants and for the health of our planet. And we have all the knowledge and all of the, um, you know, technologies to make this breakthrough. Uh, it is still a very much an intellectual and uh, challenge, and that's that's what we're addressing. But absolutely, you know, you want to be able to make a vaccine for human diseases. You want to be able to make vaccine for for your plants as well, especially if you go into space. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I have a, a, a question.
question. Uh, so I, I just uh, brief, uh, uh, quickly read the uh, abstract. I, I think this is very interesting proposal that, uh, I mean, I mean research uh, findings that, uh, uh, but uh, as a layperson, I would just sort of like to understand uh, the what is the uh, achievement here? Uh, uh, the seems to me is a uh, almost like a uh, uh, you know as a, 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 a you know a, not an expert in this field. I would describe this is almost like a, a from bottom up versus top down method. You're looking at the effector, the molecules, and try to uh, almost reverse engineer what the protein and then go up uh, instead of uh, top down like you from the uh, gene you know the uh, what do you call also uh, if you can elaborate a little bit more about the top down method the uh, homologous type of uh, approach yeah that I would appreciate yeah, thanks of course Frank that, and that's a great question so um, what happens? What happened about you know 10, 20 years ago? We had a revolution in genome sequencing and our ability to decode um, genomes, and that gave us information about the DNA that's present in almost any organisms. And we've now moving towards the era where we'll have these sequences for almost every organism on Earth. There are projects like that. Now these gives us the DNA, the genome. The DNA encodes genes that are then transcribed into RNA and translated into proteins. And what builds up cells, right, and what builds up uh, most of the functions in the cells is the proteins. And although we can now tell, you know, the amino acid sequence of these proteins, what uh, their function is encoded in the 3D shape of the proteins. Um, and in order to know what, you know what the proteins do, we need to know the 3D shape. Previously, and experimentally, the structures, the 3D shapes of the proteins are available for less than 0.1% of genes overall. In a fungal pathogen like Magnaporta, those structures are available for maybe uh, 10 or 15 proteins, like re you know, experimentally solved structures out of thousands and thousands. And okay, so we have this vast amount of DNA information, we have this absolutely minimal amount of what these proteins look like, really look like in 3D space. And all the previous methods, what they relied on, they relied on homology modeling, meaning for this 0.1% of proteins where we have experimental structure, if we can find, if, if our sequence looks something like that sequence for which we know the structure, we can say, hey, maybe the proteins that we are decoding in our organism, they look something like what's been experimentally shown. Now, when it comes to fungal pathogens, they often, there is no detectable homology. There is no thing that looks like these secreted proteins. They evolve too rapidly. They change their genomes and amino acid uh, sequences, their genomes and code too rapidly. So we cannot 
reliably use homology methods, we don't have anything, any point of reference. We didn't know what they look like. And the mach this machine learning approach, what it utilized, it utilized vast amount of information, sequence information to say, hey, if a particular points in the protein amino acid residues are co-evolving, that a change in one leads to a change in the other, we can start to use this information to de novo predict folding of that protein, the shape of the protein. Um, and that's what we applied. That's the breakthrough that we applied here. But basically what we are after is what do um, these proteins look like in 3D in order to understand how they function? What, th what do they actually do? I hope that makes sense. Oh, so you're using machine learning uh, algorithm like uh, 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 that would require uh, identify some features. What are the features you're looking yes. for? So the machine learning algorithms today that solve the protein folding structures, they've been trained on two things. Um, they've been uh, trained on the existing databases of salt structures, plus the features are the co-evolving amino acid residues um, across uh, many, many proteins. So they've been trained on very huge data sets and on the data points within the proteins that change, that um, codependent on each other. And the, the idea that these algorithms used was that the points that are codependent, that change together, they're more likely to be closer in 3D space. And uh, the uh, breakthrough in this machine learning algorithms, they've been shown to outcompete homology-based modeling in 2018 in um, a community-wide competition that happens every two years. And that's when it there caught our eye and we decided, well, um, because they work well enough de novo to de novo solve protein structures, we can now apply it on a genome-wide level to resolve thousands of structures of thousands of proteins and be able to compare them in this 3D space. I see. So just uh, 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 m my guess is that the previous uh, homologous uh, uh, methods, uh, they had their, their, their metric of uh, definition of uh, uh, similarity is less granular than the feature that uh, you're using. You're, you're breaking it down to uh, finer uh, components and uh, starting from there and uh, uh, redefine a similarity metric and regrouping. Can I, uh, am I right in, on this line or um, I'm confused? Mm -hmm. So the previous homology-based modeling required the presence of a homologue and a homologue is a um, sequence with enough sequence similarity to say that you know your sequence likely uh, is related and evolved from a common ancestor. So it requires a homologue. In the secreted vitus virulence factors um, of many pathogens, there are no detectable homologues, uh, with especially with salt structures. So they were blind spots for this method, completely. 
it's not like the structure could be predicted badly. There was no, there's no, nothing. Because you put it into database and you get nothing. You get nothing that looks like these sequences. They're diverging too rapidly. The machine learning methods, they were trained on large data sets um, where there are some uh, homologs, but they were then, um, we could apply them to de novo structure prediction, to the folding using primary sequence alone without having a homolog with a salt structure. I hope that makes sense. I think I got it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I think the key is the uh, uh, innovation. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, getting beyond the uh, homologs. Yeah, uh, now I got the point. Exactly. Think, thanks exactly. And that's particularly um, key to the to the pathogens. May I ask a question, please? Um, well, thanks. Uh, well, uh, actually, uh, thank you for the introduction and for the fascinating work. And just in a brief, I get two questions. So by what extent could we address just from the structure of the protein, the functional proximity of it? I mean, whether it could be an enzyme or something like, for what percentage do we can get the function based on the structure or uh, of itself? And my second question, uh, could we extend the, the same pattern for from just the structure or the single sequence of the gene itself or the structure of the protein to uh, get a clue about the phenotypic or morphological uh, uh, expression or genomorphic expression? Thank you. Um, sure. I think the, the first question for me is, is the answer is easier to that. Um, so the, what we do when we uh, make the structures, uh, we group the structures into similarity groups, right? Saying, hey, this is a, a group of proteins that looks alike in 3D. And then we're able to compare it to the uh, 3D structural databases of anything and everything that's available. Um, and that often does give us a clue uh, what the protein might be doing or, or what, what, are, what are other proteins that have been characterized, it looks like. Um, in, you know, it does give us a good a starting point. It doesn't tell us for sure, but it's a kind of a hypothesis generation point. It gave us a, a hypothesis generation point for many of these um, proteins. There is still a remaining, you know, um, what we call novel folds, folds that haven't been seen before. And for these, we don't know, right? They don't look like anything else. They're exciting as well, because they might be something that, you know, pathogens really use, but um, using the comparative structural genomics, I think we can also look at this prevalence of this novel folds as well across other pathogens. Now, your second question was, can we predict what's essential for a pathogen? And I think here, um, the it's harder, right? Um, a pathogen is really, really good at its job, especially a fungal pathogen that can rely on thousands of proteins. There's often redundancy, meaning, well, if 
you can lose one gene and use the other one that does a similar thing. Our ability to make the structural groups um, allow, gives us a better idea of what's redundant. And for example, now with the genome editing in CRISPR, we can um, look and test what particular structural group might be essential for a pathogen, uh, because we know which groups of gene now to target to pick, edit, and see if there is a phenotypic effect. And before that, we would have been just, you know, shooting in the dark. We didn't know what groups with what. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It was very informative. Can I ask a quick question? Yes, go ahead. Um, professor, what are the next steps that you and your team are going to do because I was reading the end of your paper and it seems that the rest that you haven't identified, I guess they are related to pseudo enzymes somehow. And my second question would be, um, what exactly are pseudo enzymes? I'm not uh, too familiar with that term. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. So the, ne we, the next two things we're doing and um, uh, right now is a this comparative computational structural genomics where we're applying that exact same approach to a bunch of different fungi with different lifestyles to see what's common across them and what's unique to particular pathogens. Um, and the second one is the pseudoenzymes are particularly interesting. And what we're looking at is where do uh, pathogen-specific molecules come from, right? They, it's not like they come from out of space, they, they come from probably existing genes. And um, what we've observing right now is um, sometimes there is an, you know, a gene, an enzyme that might encode um, a very routine function for a fungus in general, just living in peace, um, but it might be utilized by a pathogen to evolve a new function. And what we see in the pseudoenzyme families is that the original enzymatic function is lost, yet there is a diversification of particular protein surfaces that we think might be repurposed to target um, some of the host proteins. And that's what we're tracking. Uh, pseudoenzyme means it, it doesn't have a new, it has an overall shape of a known enzyme, um, but it's lost um, some of the residues that other people predicted would be important for the catalytic activity of that enzyme. And yet those are not um, pseudogenes, like they're conserved, they're expanding, and we see evidence of evolution acting on parts of them um, that might not be the exact catalytic site. Thank you for your answer. Um... My next question would be, um, how long did this whole study take you and your team to develop and carry out? That's an excellent question. We started it quite early and before the major press releases and, and availability of major algorithms, it took us, uh, it took us about six months to run the analysis, six months to run the analysis, few months, and then um, and homology-based modeling to which we were comparing actually took longer. 
And then it took us another, um, and by us, I mean actually Kunyang, it's led by one person and one absolutely brilliant graduate student with lots of perseverance and grit. It took them a few more months to analyze the data, but the actual lag time for us was to publish it. We were early enough with this data where we put it out and we pre-printed it, and it actually on uh, wasn't obvious to the communities that um, this worked well. So we had to talk to a lot of people. We had to explain. We have to explain exactly what we did, what controls we run. And so it took us another six months to publish it. So overall year and a half from conception to publication. And how long do you think it's going to take you carry out uh, to carry out the, the next... Uh few steps that you're thinking of doing actually much faster so the um, analysis of the 40 so we scaled up right analysis of the 40 pathogens and their secreted structural data sets are complete already and uh, right now Kunyang is just doing the comparative analysis and writing the paper and I predict that it would actually be easy and faster to publish the second study now that Actually, the community is much more comfortable with the ideas of machine learning to predict structures and uh, the computational structural genomics approaches. Yeah, hey, uh, thank you, Katarina. And I just had a quick question. I, I don't have a biological background, but I do understand computers. And uh, I just wanted to know, so your data model that you have been referring to, uh, the AI model that's working right now, what has that been trained on? As in, uh, has it been trained on the um, fungal pathogens from the human infections, or has it been trained on from the uh, plant infections, or has it been trained on the um, animal uh, infections? And the follow-up question for that will be, um, how long has been, or how old is the data model that you've been working with? Like, how long has it been trained for? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the training is done um, by the, it's not done by us. It takes immense computational power and a lot of GPU power essentially. And um, the um, algorithms we're using right now, they're called AlphaFold2. They've been trained, they developed by DeepMind and Google. They've been trained at Google on, um, everything so not just plant pathogens not just human pathogens on every available single available protein structure because you need as i said the actual um experimentally solved data set is absolutely minuscule so you need every you need to scrape basically everything and anything that's available the training on um, should be like you know we're working with absolutely latest algorithms and um i'm not sure exactly when the training was updated for alpha fold 2 i would love to have more computational power for my group than we have now and be able to train some of these algorithms ourselves and see how it affects the outcome Yeah, thank you for that. Um, just like last quick question. So you said like the successor from the uh, uh, program where they created AlphaGo? Yeah, exactly. 
So the well, so for the machine learning methods for protein structure prediction, there are two main um, groups that reported the breakthrough in 2018. One was the academic uh, group, a um, couple of academic groups, and they developed a program called TR Rosetta, and they've been working on it for the past 30 years. And the other group was DeepMind, the same developers that developed AlphaGo, they, they developed AlphaFold. And both of these in 2018 outcompeted homology-based modeling and um, performed quite equally. And then in the next two years, uh, DeepMind uh, developed AlphaFold2. And what they did, they um, they did several innovations. Some of them still remain a black box to us. Others are more or less clear. And the AlphaFold 2 now does outperform, including in our hands, the precision of uh, structure prediction. It's, it doesn't resolve many more structures. So about if we take you know, full secreted proteins, about 2,000 of them from this pathogen, both approaches, academic and the um, industry, uh, they develop, they predict confidently about 60% of them. Uh, but AlphaFold 2 gives a better precision, more like atomic level resolution of the structures for which um, a good model can be obtained. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, can I ask another question? Um, I think Abyss is flashing his mic and then we can come back to you. Okay. Uh, thanks, Garrett. Uh, thanks, uh, Xenia. I've been listening to the presentation, although I have to admit that I came in late. Um, so I do have a couple of questions. So um, the first one is that um, you're, I'm, I'm assuming that you're actually using the sort of like the, the data that's been sort of um, um, used by AlphaFold, I guess, like uh, when you when you answered Flame's question, I was kind of um, getting a, my reply at the same time. But um, were these structures, I guess my question is like, uh, were these structures developed or, um, um, or, or at least like, was there like, a, you know, uh, X-ray crystallography actually done on those um, protein um, uh, geometries or did, was there any kind of novel technique that was applied to in order to determine the structure of the proteins to for you to use as your uh, your training data or or at least like the the data that you're interested in in sort of predicting the um, um, you know the potential proteins that you would expect in um, a pathogenic fungi uh, that's my first question um, my second one is that um, um, we all know that, um, you know, but we do have bacterial infections, um, viral infections, for which we have most um, sort of like medications or some kind of interventions fully developed at this point. But um, I heard that uh, fungal, fungal infections are rather persistent. I know that may not be your area of expertise from the perspective that you're studying uh, fungal pathogens with regards to plants, but um, um, what sort of effort is, is out there to kind of uh, mitigate those persistent fungal infections that can actually endure the body temperature, which I think is the most um, 
uh, one of the things that actually protects us from um, uh, fungi to essentially um, have lasting inf infections. So those are my two questions. Those are great questions, Abyss. So to address the first one, experimental um, kind of validation, experimental data, there are about 20 or 30 data points available for fungal effectors overall. Uh, we did use them to see how good the predicted confidence scores corresponded to uh, these uh, experimental data points, the re real ones, in including we did look at specifically at the structures that had been solved after the models have been trained. Because again, the models, um, the machine learning models, they've been trained on, not by us, they've been, and they've been trained, you know, like we knew the data, but we knew the date when they've been trained. Um, and so we were able to assess that. And what we saw is that the predictive confidence scores corresponded really well to the actual precision. And so we could use on those thousands of models, we can use the predicted confidence scores as a measure of the accuracy. And indeed we use that and we used a 0.5 cutoff that corresponds well, the program uh, got the overall fold of the protein correctly. Uh, specific atoms might be uh, not in place, but we also said, well, if it's below that cutoff, that we knew has a good um, value, then we're not gonna do the analysis on these proteins. You know, those are not good models, um, in etc. Um, the other point that you're making is yes, fungal, and that was I was doing introduction. Different pathogens can be successful with a completely drastically orders of magnitude different number of proteins they use, a viruses only, you know, because a few genes, bacteria, a couple of dozens, fungi, many, many, many. And in, you know, the infections are persistent. They're really good at doing their job. It's really hard to get rid of them. Um, and that's one of our questions as well, you know, how, what, what, what do their weapons and secreted proteins look like? How can we target them? Thank you. Um, I think Arvind, um, go ahead. You had the question, I think. Yeah. Um, so I was just reading the abstract, and then it says in that, if I can quote, it says, along with sensitive homology search that you employed structure-based clustering, defining not only homologous, homologous groups with divergent members, but also sequence unrelated but structurally analogous groups. So I'm guessing like, OK, the machine learning does its job and it's able to identify this, but uh, have you guys postulated a mechanism as to how these are actually, how these are actually related and uh, why, I guess, uh, or, uh, you know, some kind of causal mechanism for why they fold the way they do? Uh, uh, any more insight into that? Because I think from that sentence, it's, you have genetically homologous proteins uh, with different structures, but also different sequences with similar structures. So is there any kind of deeper insight or some other level of clustering that you uh, postulated or hypothesized about? Yes. So, Irvin, this is an excellent point. So the first point, you can have sequences that are drastically different, yet they fall the same. Um, and that is we, because the um, sequences in the pathogen, they revolve 
really, really rapidly. So they lose um, the similarity sequence um, signal. It's hard to tell um, that they are homologous when in fact they are, they're just diverging very rapidly. And they're still able to preserve the same structure because um, um, you need only actually a few amino acids to hold the structure together. And most of the amino acids that are on the surface of the structure can evolve away and then not without affecting the core, kind of the structural core. The amino acids that are pointing inside, um, that's what's holding the structural core together. Now, just by looking at sequence in string space, you cannot tell which amino acids would be pointing to the core, which ones are pointing outside. So it's hard to detect um, this conservation, that homology. The other point is how can we have structures from seemingly unrelated pathogen, including a bacteria or plus a fungus that look the same? Um, are these analogous, meaning that they were not homologs, they were derived independently? Have they been horizontally transferred, for example, between pathogens? Have, do they represent some very, very ancient, very, very divergent sequence? So that we cannot answer in this study, but that's why we're doing this comparative study, where we're doing, starting to do comparative uh, evolutionary analysis in 3D space. Hope that helps. Yeah, if I can just go a little deeper into the uh, one with the uh, the structure. So if we're talking about say um, the amino acids that you're talking uh, that you're saying are um, sort of core members or sort of skeletal amino acids, and then everything else can kind of change around that. Uh, have you been able? I mean, have you been able to identify the uh, in in the ones that you've run? Uh, have you been able to identify the point at which uh, these amino acids in in the string, so in the one-dimensional uh, string of amino acids that represents that protein, uh, would you be able to identify that uh, these amino acids have to occur at a certain location? Um, and because I'm I'm still trying to imagine, you know, like beads on a string. If I place amino acid after amino acid to create a protein, which is a, which is an exercise. Uh, if I place four or five, and then it turns out that every fifth amino acid is critical, then we can identify that uh, because maybe it folds over with a radius of four or five, and then those are bonded uh, through hydrogen bonding or something. I'm not, I, I'm not certain of what the mechanism would be, but uh, I would have thought that the number would be conserved. So the, uh, the spacing in the one dimension would be conserved for the critical amino acids. Is that? Uh, wrong for some reason? I mean, that's a great question. I can tell you that, so I have, when, you know, when I did a PhD, we did sort of like one structure of one protein, my whole PhD, six years, and another group, you know, spent another six years and they solved another structure, and our structures from two different pathogens, they look the same. And so that's where my interest as well started with that. What we can do and what we were looking for, exactly what you say, it's like, well, what is, what is the same in them? Like, what are these motifs? And the, the way one does that, we can make structure on structure alignments. So align structure, overimpose them over each other. And from that overimposing them, derive the primary sequence alignment of who aligns with whom in the primary space. And then specifically look of 
what are the amino acids pointing in holding the structure together and how how do they align what might be conserved now even when we did that with the experimentally solved structures that looked alike we were able to do that we were able to derive this alignment and we came up with three amino acids so three bids on the string w y and there was one more that was highly slightly variable and those are the ones that were conserved in holding the structure together so the number of amino acids that are needed to maybe hold that together it's not much it's not a lot and therefore it's it's you know it doesn't give much um it gives some information we still call this structures wy you know after this two amino acid type structures um but if you have you know 300 beads on the string and only two of them tell you what holds this together um it's then hard to utilize this information in the primary sequence space to then you know go and look for anything else that looks like that we still did that with, with the reliable, reliable success utilizing hidden Markov models. Uh, but now I'm convinced that doing these comparisons in 3D space is much, much more powerful. But, you know, Kunyang is actually thinking along that line as well. Can we now identify some motifs um, that are associated with particular folds? I, I don't have the full answer yet to that. Yeah, that's awesome. And a last uh, comment on that. So would those key amino acids then naturally be targets for some uh, therapy? So uh, for some pharmacology, if these things are pathogens? Because then you change the entire structure pretty significantly and yeah, probably the protein loses its function. Oh, that, that's a fantastic idea. I haven't thought about it that way. On... Disrupting these particular critical points that holds the structure to either with, you know, even if you send like genome editing or some, that's a fantastic, I actually haven't thought about it in, in, in this way, but yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Cool. Glad I could put that into your head. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for all those great questions. Is anyone does anyone have another question? I think uh, we have maybe three to four more minutes, if if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Doctor Kruslev. Is there any way to contact you um, in in order to, I guess, uh, see how the study is going? or to talk to you more about um, your other research? Harley, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Yes, um, the best ways you can contact me on Twitter. So I put my handle and my bio profile. You can um, look at my website and send me an email. And I can also, um, I'm always happy to correspond by email or schedule a Zoom talk. I have heard already uh, from colleagues working on human pathogens, fungal pathogens, they would they love this approach, would love to apply it. Um, and in general, I'm always happy to talk. So email or Twitter are both really, really good. And to follow up, follow me on Twitter and I will um, tweet all of the research coming out of the lab. That's my professional Twitter account. Yeah, or maybe you you could also come back here um, 
maybe when you have updates at some point this this is such a great and informative room so we really appreciate it of course thank you katarina for exposing me to this environment it was new to me and i i'm actually quite um eager to tell about it to my lab as well and um and, you know, hopefully you can invite some of them here as well and um, listen to all of the rooms and chats and uh, be part of this uh, conversation. Wow, yeah, that's wonderful. We would be happy to have um, your uh, colleagues um, and your lab members in our club. That would be wonderful. And yes, um, come back anytime. We have um, amazing guest speakers. Um, of course, <laughs> your your work is quite exceptional, but we will have um, more guest speakers. Um, just um, for everyone, uh, please follow the Club Science Society. If you click on the reminders of the rooms, uh, you can, you know, you will see when when we have rooms like this. You can click on the calendar and follow. Uh, we also have a website. Um, it's also on the bio um, of Science Society and where we have the upcoming rooms, just um, to give you a quick overview of the few next um, rooms that are coming up tomorrow. Uh, we will talk again about innovations in renewable energy to address climate change. Uh, we um, That's a follow-up room from um, a previous room. Uh, we have a philosophy of AI building the minds of tomorrow. We have Coram um, uh, Zoberi, he will talk about his thesis um, that he wrote about this. And uh, yeah, and then next week we have uh, Dr. Mohanta explaining promising depression therapy she's been working on. And Dr. Weigel and Dr. Monroe, um, this it, they will present this really groundbreaking research that DNA mutations are not random after all. So it kind of challenges the um, so far evolutionary um, hypothesis we have so far that mutations are random. So um, yeah, this will be a very interesting talk and I'm very excited to have them here also and maybe <laughs> Dr. Kwasileva it's kind of in your uh, field a little bit in your field of research maybe you want to come and listen to them but it's at 1 p.m EST since they are from Germany so I'm not sure if that's a time that you're available but yeah please follow the club um come back and thank you so much we are you know you um, gave us an amazing talk and answered so many questions. We are very thankful. Thank you, Katarina. Thank you, everyone. And yes, uh, Gray Monroe and Detlef Weigel are good colleagues of mine and they're doing amazing work. So I urge everyone here to attend their talk as well. Yeah, great. Um, so, yeah, um, thank you so much again for coming, especially on such a sad day um, of the political and personal events that are affecting a lot of people and lives. Um, I wish you all the best and um, yeah, and I'll 
um, let me share again the link um, if you want to uh, learn more about the current situation and or donate um, for humanitarian costs related to the current war in Russia. Um, here's a link. I have this um, link from a previous room that was held by, uh, by a journalist from NPR, National Public Radio. Um, so um, as far as I can tell, you know, um, it's uh, trustworthy, the links in there. So please go ahead and check them out. And uh, thank you again. Enjoy. Have a good evening, nevertheless. And um, yeah, see you again uh, uh, tomorrow. Okay, thank you, everyone. Really appreciate it. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye. Yeah, thank you, Katarina, for hosting the rooms. Bye. Yeah, thanks, Kat. Thank you. Thank you for coming.